Hey, this is Pastor A.J. Swanson from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. The following is our summer 2022 sermon series called One Another, in which we look at the one another passages and concepts within the Bible with the hope that we will see discipleship relationships take place within our church in the years to come. Join us on our journey of life with one another. You can find out more information about Hicksville Cornerstone Church at hixcc.org. That's hixcc.org. Enjoy this Sunday sermon. We're continuing our One Another series. We got one more week of it after today. We spent the last two months looking at one anothering, right? What it looks like to have unity with one another, what it looks like to love one another, what it looks like to serve one another, what it looks like to man the walls with one another, what it looks like to come alongside one another, even on a short journey in which someone is diving into the gospel. And today we move towards what scripture makes clear is one of the main, if not the main vehicle in which one anothering takes place. And that is discipleship. So for this week and next week, we're going to spend our time looking this week at what a disciple actually is. And next week on how we will engage in discipleship as a community in the years to come. It's the playbook, to use a sports analogy, which I'm going to lean into heavily today. So to begin, I want us to consider the Great Commission where we're called to go and make disciples. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. As we look at Matthew 28 today, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we come to you today and we beseech your presence here this morning. For without your presence, my words are nothing more than a noisy gong. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would be present within my words, that you would soften hearts, that you would embolden the saints, that you would encourage us this day. In your son's name I pray. Amen. We're going to look at the keys to the Great Commission to begin our discussion on discipleship this morning. Because if we want to understand the Great Commission, I want to give you some keys to help unpack it. it. The commission is important because as love is, as one anothering is, it is to all believers. And think of it this way. These are the last words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. Many of us have lost dear friends. And think about your own mortality. If you had last words to say to those that you love dearly, 
my guess is you would try to make it important. And likewise, this is very important. So let's look at the keys to the text this morning as we unlock it. The first key is the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Hear these words again. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Look, that church, that's a promise we need to hold on to. That's a promise that should direct our lives. That's a promise that's supposed to give us comfort. Notice what it was said in the text right before we got here. The disciples came, they worshiped, and some of them doubted. Why would he include that in the text? So that we would see the next words, all authority in heaven on earth, as a comfort. This is supposed to reassure the disciples. All authority is mine. All. Yes, I'm leaving. But I do not leave you alone. I'm on the throne. The enemy sought to dispose me, but instead I have been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Rome thinks at this point that they're in charge. And Jesus is saying, nope. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem at this point think that they are in charge. And Jesus is saying here, nope. And every other king or queen that we try to place on the throne in our lives think they're in charge. And Jesus is saying here, nope. All authority has been given to me. And this should give us great comfort as we strive to one another, as we strive for unity, as we strive for love, as we strive to serve. It isn't all depending on us. King Jesus is on the throne, and he is sovereignly working all things out for his kingdom of God to go forth. Church, the call to go, I hope this brings you comfort, the call to go isn't only dependent on your actions. But the spirit of God that dwells within you empowers you to love and to serve and to seek unity with one another. It's his grace. Recall last week's sermon. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Recall last week's sermon. The cross is not just your salvation. It's your power. It's what we draw from as we preach the gospel to ourselves. Look, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. I love Pentecost because it just shows how different people can be when the Holy Spirit catches hold of them because you have a once timid group of disciples that are now emboldened to proclaim the truth. People that once hid in fear now stand upon a tower and proclaim the gospel to those who can hear. You see, because Christ is both on the throne in heaven and united to you as you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second key. Here's the second key. The verbs. This is always a good Bible study topic. If you're ever in the Word and you're like, how can I really dive into this text or chew this text a little bit more? I always suggest, depending on your instrument, right, highlight, underline, circle the verbs. It really helps us kind of chew what is God asking me to do in this moment. So let's look at the verbs this morning. There's a lot of them here. First one, go, go. We ain't a passive church. 
We don't wait for people to come in our doors and then we share with them the gospel. We are called to go to the world to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Yes, sometimes that will mean door-to-door evangelism where we talk to people about Jesus. But the majority time in your life, that call to go is to go to the spheres of influence where God has already planted you. You go to the factory floor. You go to the farmer's market. You go to the classroom. You go where the Lord has appointed you to be and planted you for a season. So may we not discount the call to go where we've already been planted. Go there. Next. Make. Look, the only thing I make that doesn't require effort is a mess. Amen? But everything else in life, everything that I make, that I mold, that I take dominion over, takes specific action, does it not? It takes intentionality. We are to be intentional as a church and as a people in the way that we make disciples because it will not happen by accident. Next verb, baptizing. Baptism, what is it? It's an outward side of an inward change. We take the Holy Spirit to others. He works in their lives, and then we get to see them baptized. It's awesome. Many of the parents in this room, I think of just our baptism service this uh, two months ago, you got to help baptize your children. And I pray for many of you in the days to come that you will not only get to baptize some of your children, but you will get to baptize some of your friends. And because of the way the Lord works... Some of you will get to baptize people that you once considered enemies. That's a cool thought. But we are to baptize them. Next, teaching and observing. I want to take those two together because he puts them together within the text. Too many people in spiritual America, okay, will divorce mental growth from heart growth. They say things like, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. Okay? When someone says that to you, You need to respond with the question of who is Jesus? And the moment they start to answer that question, they're doing theology. Because who Jesus is and what he has done is both a mental ascent and a heart change. As one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, tends to say, everybody is a theologian. The question is whether you're just a good one or a bad one. What matters is to ask the question, are we acting like the Bereans and Acts? Conforming our thinking to the scriptures intentionally, or are we Christians in name only? Conforming the scriptures to what we are most comfortable with. We'd rather not change, we'd just rather the scriptures change to match what we feel we can handle what is culturally appropriate. Teaching and observing also links the uh, what I know to what we do. We've talked about this a lot in the past. It's the difference in the relationship between orthodoxy, right thinking, and orthopraxy, right doing. This is spelled out again, right? Think about it this way. The demons believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe, but they do not follow him. They live out what he and, and live out what he calls them to do. 
Orthopraxy, I think we all agree on, right? We want to look like a saint and not a demon. So it's, we want to assent to who Jesus is, but we also want to bring along how to observe his commandments. Here's the third key. This one might shock you, okay? The authority of Christ. The call is sandwiched within the comfort. The authority of Christ rings true at the beginning, and it rings true at the end. It's redundant, isn't it? He is with us to the end of the age. Look at the whole passage, okay? Whole passage. The disciples worship and doubt. They're working out their faith in that moment. Lord, I know you're Lord. I don't know how, what that means for me going forward. The future is unknown for me in this moment. What are you calling me to do? My guess is that many of you are there at this very moment. But he reminds us in that moment that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. God is in heaven above. It's his authority. And then he charges the disciples to go and do hard things. Again, working out their faith, figuring out what it looks like in my context and in his, and their individual worlds. They all don't do the exact same thing. They all actually do very different things. If you know church history, they go to very different places and different people and try different tactics to reach different people groups. So they're working it out. But what does God remind us in the midst of them working it out? That again, all authority is given to him. He is with them. God is with them. Jesus is king. And Jesus is not just not a king that sits on the sidelines. Amen? He is a savior who is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He does not charge us to disciple the nations and then ask us to do it alone. He surrounds the call with the great commission to go with himself to make disciples, which begs the question. We have to ask the most basic question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? I'm going to give you a one-word answer. Those are my favorite because they typically are the ones that stick with me and make it possible for me to pass the test in high school. A disciple is a follower. Very simple. A disciple is a follower. Hear the words of Jesus as he describes his people. He uses a word picture as Jesus is so prone to do. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. It's the same call, right? As he's calling out to the fishermen throughout the Gospels, what does he say to them? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And that's what a disciple is. Synonyms for this in the Greek are also student, pupil, a learner. The word is first used in the text to describe the disciples that Jesus calls. The twelve is another name we can give them. And the, the term is extended to the spiritual family of Jesus as that family is extended. And finally, in the text that we read at the, the beginning, the word is used to describe how the disciples are to, to call the nations. Go and make disciples, followers. It's bringing nations. It's bringing people under the lordship of King Jesus. They would be disciples, those who follow Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, they would desire to see other men and women follow Jesus. In a town that's sports-centric, I'm going to use some sports analogies that I hope will be useful. 
If you're a theater kid like me, I apologize for the next moment, okay? But let me try to use some sports-centric, right? In sports, to disciple someone, right, a disciple is, uh, a disciple of someone is either a disciple of the coach, right, or it's a captain on the field that we're a disciple of, that we're following their lead. I like the idea of a captain more because I think it captures the gospel more. God did not leave us alone on the sidelines, but he's actually with us in the midst of the battle. And I think captain is an apt analogy because the captain is chosen by, as the one who best displays the commands and the ideas of the coach. Now, anyone who plays sports know that sports is played with subtle different tactics, right? When you press in basketball, when you go no huddle in football, when you put the shift on in baseball, when you play direct in soccer, when you play, uh, when you direct where you direct your attack in volleyball, and if you've played those sports before, you know that when half your team is not running the right play, is not running the right design, things can go amiss. Think about it. If only half your team shifts in baseball, you leave a gaping hole where they're known to hit it. If it's only the captain on the basketball court that is pressing in the last two minutes of the game, you leave space for the offense to get behind. To be a good player, you have to grow in knowledge of how to play the game and grow in your understanding of how to play the game at the right moment. It's the same thing with being a Christian. Same thing. I would argue that the reason churches fail to grow or be effective in their communities is because they neglect the call of the Great Commission and they neglect operating as a collective body. They get comfortable. They lack a plan for discipleship. They lack the vigor to reach the nations, starting with their own community. Here's the thing. Many of us haven't been taught how to disciple someone. We're just being honest. I, I, I've talked to many of you in this room. You're like, I don't know how to disciple anybody. And so we have to get better at that as a church, especially as leadership. Others of us, if we're honest, have just been lazy, right? It's easier to let the paid staff do it. And still others of us are, are not really saved yet. And so we don't see the need to save others. So how do we follow Jesus? How do disciples act, right? That's a good question. How do disciples act? Because if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to have someone with a title, you should act a specific way. Here's the answer. They act vertically and horizontally. They act vertically and horizontally. What do I mean by vertically? The relationship with their creator God is central to all they do. If you're a disciple and you're discipling someone else and Jesus is not at the center of your relationship. Jesus is no longer the rock in which you build your foundation in the discipleship relationship. You are no longer a disciple of Christ. You're discipling some other way. You have some other title. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple being built. Hear these words from Ephesians 2. They might be a little familiar because we talk about them all the time because it's literally the name of our church. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the foundation of all Christian relationships. And the moment he's not, we become something else, both literally and figuratively. We're no longer built upon this cornerstone. We no longer are a temple to the Lord. To be a disciple means Christ is at the center of our relationships. And that includes not just our vertical relationships with God himself, but that means our horizontal relationships with one another. Let's focus on the horizontal discipleship, right? Discipleship between Christians has both a vertical and horizontal relationship. Always, as we grow in our faith, we look to the great shepherd Jesus, whom we follow. But we are to disciple one another. That's what it says in the Great Commission. Now, what does that look like? Okay, so for many of us in the course of history, when we look at this, we think of the mentor-mentee relationship, right? We find trained individuals to help us grow in a specific way of knowledge and practice of the Christian faith. And And I'm not knocking this. This is a good model. But too often we think it's the only model. And therefore, the call to go and make disciples of all the nations simply becomes the great suggestion to the most of the church instead of the great commission. Because we'll just leave it to the paid staff to do. Pastor, how on earth am I supposed to disciple anybody? I'm not trained. I didn't have a seminary degree. I think we've raised the bar in our culture so high to be a disciple maker that I fear actually few people will actually engage in it. What if the expertise to be a disciple maker is actually an idol of our own making? My guess is if I asked everyone in this room to raise their hands to see if they'd be willing to lead a discipleship group to train people in knowledge and growth of the scripture. We got Bryn, she's on it, she's in on it. If I asked you, many of you, we'd have very few hands in the room. I'm not trained. Right? Let me give you a realistic bar of what it means to one another. Let me give you a realistic one to disciple in our current context. And I actually do want hands for this one. Okay? Who thinks they can meet together with two or three other people on their own time, on your own schedule, open a Bible, see what it has to say, talk about it, and pray for one another. Who thinks they could potentially do that? Not a lot more. I actually think many of you could do that. Because you're not relying on the trained individual, you're relying on the word of God to disciple you, to challenge you. These are things that we're, I think many of us can do and meet. This is biblical one anothering. You see, the word, of the word of God is the basis for all our relationships because the word made flesh is the cornerstone of our relationships. Here are these one another phrases as we reflect on horizontal discipleship. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, you should know what these words are. In the text here, it's a reminder that the Lord is with us and the Lord is coming back. We're to encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So much of discipleship is simply knowing there's someone beside you in the battle. 
pointing one another to the reign of King Jesus, who's on the throne when life gets hard. God uses suffering all the time to wake us up from our own little kingdoms and to remind us that this life is to be an offering, to have co-laborers in the gospel to encourage us to build us up. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Discipleship should not end with just the two or three people that we meet with, but it should remind us that we're to love our neighbors in an intentional way. This won't happen in a vacuum, though. It has to be intentional. We act to actively pursue, actively pursue these things. When we don't, self-love becomes paramount, and good works are more directed inward than they are outward. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, and in so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to be there for one another. If we don't risk relationships that are deep, deep, we cannot meet and bear one another's burdens in times of deep trials. Too many Christians suffer alone. It's the hardest thing for me to watch people go through. Too many Christians suffer alone. Sometimes because they have distanced themselves from the church and other times, and more gravely, the churches distance themselves from them. We must not do that. When Christianity is simply consumerism, I think this is what drives the church apart. I know that uh, there are people that think, well, I would want to go to church on Sunday, check the attendance box, and not interact with anyone else, right? There's no risk. And this is a hard saying, but I have seen it over and over again. Those, many of them are those same people that die alone and leave no legacy outside themselves. I desire for you not to ever walk that bridge. And I don't think Jesus does either. We must risk relationship in our pride we think we do our brothers and sisters in Christ a favor when we don't ask for help, when we're self-sufficient. That's an idol in our culture. Christian, give your family opportunities to love and serve you and support you. It reveals that you're human. It reveals that you are indeed weak and Christ is your strength. There was a missionary in Papua New Guinea trying to reach the people for Jesus many years ago. And she labored for many years with little success. And you know what changed the outcome for her? When she got sick and her neighbors who weren't Christians got to care for her in her home, feed her food because suddenly they realized that it wasn't some holy woman in, the, in their midst but someone who is offering a holy king. May we not let our pride get in the way, church, of being able to be real with one another. May we make a habit of entering into the burdens of one another. Christ becomes much more attractive to a dark world when we do. It reminds us of this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? 
in my seminary degree. My power is made perfect because I've watched 30 hours of YouTube videos on religion in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Christ uses the burdens of this world to knit us together with one another and with himself. Too often pride gets in the way. Last verse on horizontal discipleship that I'll make today. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We hide our weaknesses. To be a disciple means to expose them. Not like get up here. I'm not going to ask you to like come up here and be like, okay, lay it out. It's confession time, right? I will not ask you to do that most of the time. However, all of us need at least one person that we can go to to say, I'm struggling. I got this sin that's like a pet that I can't get rid of in my house, and it smells, and it eats the furniture, and it pees everywhere. We've talked about this before, right? We got to be honest with it. Newsflash, the majority of the sins that you deal with, everyone else already knows about. They see you commit them, especially your family. It's just confessing it so that we can deal with it. A lot of times we've got to name the issue so that we can approach it, right? Let's use another sports analogy context. You've got a batter who is swinging at every slider. Every baseball coach in the room knows this. They know the batter, right? He might have been the batter. The batter's got two options. The batter can ask for help, or the batter can keep swinging. Now, on a good team, you got other players and captains and coaches that are going to call you out on the mistakes you're making, not because they dislike you, but because they actually like you and they want you to succeed. And the times... When that doesn't happen, it shows a lot more of the mistrust, the disunity, and probably the myriad of other issues that are going on on that sports team, right? Because if they're missing your problem, they're probably ignoring the other 12 that exist on the team. So if a disciple is a follower, and a disciple maker is pursuing vertical and horizontal relationships built upon Christ, how are you doing? Are you a disciple? Here's another way of asking it, okay? I think I've done this before, but it's a good analogy to help you. Are you in the game or are you watching it? Are you in the game or are you watching it, okay? I love jerseys, right? I probably have like 15 of them in my house. Jack owns how many? Zero. So we haven't instituted Jersey Day at the office yet, right? Like I love jerseys. But I'm old enough now to, to if I get a jersey, right, I'm only getting a team Hall of Famer, a league Hall of Famer, or somebody that has like a good reputation, right? Because in my younger years, I bought way too many jerseys of rookies who flamed out of the league. And now it's a waste of my time. I have this beautiful beautiful creamsicle. Some of you remember that from the old Buccaneer days. Creamsicle 
Buccaneers jersey with Josh Freeman's name and number on the back. For those of you that know who that player is, you feel sorry for me. For those of you that don't, it proves my point. <laughs> I can't show up at a Bucks party and be like, look who I'm wearing. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. This is a Nolan Ryan jersey, right? Which means if you rush the pulpit right now, I'm going to put you in a headlock, okay? <laughs> Clint, don't think it. <laughs> and jerseys are a million, billion dollar industry. People go to games and they sit in the stands with their favorite player and jersey name on and they cheer on their team. Woo! Even if it's a losing team or season. We love doing this. It feels like we're part of the crew. Part of the community. But when we're a disciple, we're called to make more of it, right? We're called to be more of it. Here's my worry, church, when it comes to the Great Commission. Is we have a lot of people that put on their jerseys and come to church on a Sunday morning and they make a lot of noise. And they're watching the game, but they're not in it yet. Here's the beautiful thing, and I'm convinced of it from the Great Commission. The Lord Jesus wants you to wear a jersey, but he actually has put your name on it. And it has a position for you within the game. So how will we do that? How will we be a disciple-making culture? How will we be a disciple-making culture? We're going to talk about this a lot in the months and years to come. Five years from now, my prayer is that when people talk about Cornerstone Church, they bring up the fact that they're a bunch of disciple makers. That we're a disciple maker of disciple makers to the third and fourth generation, which is just a fun theological way of saying forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? We want people to say that they're real about their faith, that they pray for one another, that they carry one another's burdens, they confess sin, and they share their faith. And we're going to start making disciple-making triads and quads this fall. We already have a core team that has met together that is learning how to do this. And in the fall, those eight people are going to go out and start their own triads and quads. So we're going to have about 20 people that are hopefully going through a disciple-making journey in the fall and the spring with us. With the purpose that next year, that doubles or triples. Because those same people will then take on their own triads and quads. And then... The year after that, it, by the time year four or five rolls around, our prayer is the vast majority of our church has gone through a discipleship group, is leading a discipleship group, and is living a disciple maker life. We want to teach you how to do this. We want to give you the jersey. We want to give you the stuff to help you get in the game. And we're making steps to do this. Our prayer as elders and discipleship leaders is over the course of the next five years, the majority of our church will be part of this. For we want to see the kingdom of God grow. And we want to do it in the way that he's commissioned us to do it. I would invite you to pray for the church body as a whole as we enter into this. Because we believe this is the way that the Bible acts us to function. If we want to overcome a consumer-driven, me-centered model of church that plagues the West, we're going to start small and grow like a mustard seed in our community. 
going deep and wide, drawing one soul at a time until revival breaks forth. We'd ask that you would please, please pray for your church as we pursue this. And also pray for, pray for clarity on how the Lord would use you in this. How would the Lord use you in this? How would he have you grow? Not just in a way that makes you comfortable, <laughs> but in the way that scripture speaks. Church, in the years to come, I firmly believe this. I firmly believe we're going to continue to grow vertically in our relationship with the Lord, and we're going to grow horizontally with one another. And I firmly believe that he's calling us to this endeavor. My question to you is, will you join us in it? And Jesus said to his friends as he left, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Amen? Bow your heads with me.